Loot, swag, bungs, backhanders, whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of funny money about. Welcome to Filthy Lucre, the podcast which digs into all kinds of scams, hustles and scandals and looks at how big time financial corruption thrives all around us. Filthy Lucre. I'm Richard Brooks. I'm a journalist and over the last couple of decades, I've investigated all kinds of dodgy dealing. I want to introduce you to some of the most revealing stories from the world of big money and some of the people who have dragged them out of the shadows. We started this series looking at illicit wealth, especially the dodgy Russian money washing through the UK, and asked what we can do about it. This time I'm joined by someone I've known for many years, a man with hair-raising personal experience of the front line of the war on money laundering. He's Martin Woods. He introduced me and the wider world to the use of British shell companies, including a particular form called the Limited Liability Partnership, as the global vehicles of choice for concealing and moving looted money. Martin is a former police detective who moved into financial crime as a compliance officer at American bank Wachovia's London office. He soon became a crucial whistleblower, exposing some of the financial world's dirtiest secrets. I started out by asking Martin about his own story. I started to work for an American bank called Wachovia, which is now part of Wells Fargo. Wachovia was a big, big bank domestically in America, small internationally, but with aspirations. And they had a number of relationships with Casas de Cambio customers in Mexico, which are money service businesses, many of which had been compromised by the Mexican drug cartels. And I watched significant sums of transfers and money flowing into the accounts and decided yep that's money laundering <laughs> interestingly there were people at the bank think there was no money laundering taking place at Wachovia Bank until I turned up they didn't see money laundering in the supply chain they saw it as a single instance so no we're all taking part in it which is why I'm putting a stop to it and uh, blocked it the head of South America became my nemesis he was a bully but I love bullies you know because in the police service that's what I used to tackle and when this guy worked out he couldn't bully me he jumped on a plane and flew to London and took me for lunch to charm me and he related the story that he was frustrated at his um, busy development objectives because he was not able to compete with HSBC and during the course of this conversation I thought oh my god there's a situation here where my bank is complaining they can't launder money as well as HSBC do it the bankers the relationship bankers they see relationships with people representing those banks and they see nice people they see charming fathers mothers, daughters, wives, and they develop these relationships and what they have in common. And they forget, actually, these people you're dealing with are representatives of an organisation, and the organisation we're facing off to. Again, my nemesis, I blocked one transaction, and I asked America, what are you doing about the fact that the owner of the bank has been charged with money laundering? He wrote back to me, said, how dare you say this about my client? He's a wonderful gentleman. He said, this scurrilous press article has no validity. And I wrote back to him and said, actually, it's a court transcript. So back to the question, what are you doing about the fact that your customer's been charged with money laundering? The tension you immediately get is this judgment call. You are questioning that individual's judgment to say, we think your customer's bad. There is, um, I guess there should be a tension between the compliance people like you and the relationship banker who wants the business. Where's the power in that relationship? Some banks want to launder the money, so they want a, a passive individual but if you don't want to launder the money, you want somebody like me, a robust individual who, who likes the confrontation, to be perfectly frank with you. I revel in that. But I don't, for the sake of it, it gives me an opportunity to articulate 
what I'm doing and, and justify what I do in the organisation. Essentially, in truth, everything I do is to protect people, including very often the relationship banker themselves. I'm trying to protect them from being compromised by poor judgment on their part or by a criminal who's seeking to un- compromise them and make them make the wrong decisions. I like the job and, and the suspicious activity report is when it all comes together and it's a very satisfying feeling finding that report and closing your customer's account, particularly when your customer was a bank. You're a detective, aren't you? I am. That probably explains why you find it satisfying to identify a suspicious transaction and do something about it. Were all your colleagues in the banks similarly minded? Were they detectives? Obviously not by professional background, but were they instinctively detectives? Somewhere, but most were not. I've often pondered what made me different to a lot of them. And I think it was meeting victims as well helped. Meeting victims motivated you. I actually thought when I blew the whistle that the lives of 150,000 Mexicans mattered. A lot of that money in the Wachovia laundry was coming into the UK, but lots of it, most of it was dollars into the US. or dollars into China. But the bank would just accept whatever the customer said. I recall when I was at one firm, I was closing the relationship with the bank and the lawyers in London, not too far from here, called me and said, can you come and please meet with our client? He's the acting CEO of the bank. He'd like to present his case. You know this, Richard. When you are undertaking investigations, it's not always what you find, it's what you don't find. So when you have these international businesses, these UK LLP entities operating out of Latvia or Ukraine and massive sums of money, you say, well, where's the website? And, of course, there was no website. So I said this to the CEO. I said, there's no website. He said, no, that's easier to explain. He said, the goods are sold by Russian companies, but the invoices are sent by the UK companies. I said, that avoids the tax. He said, that's right. I said, that's called money laundering. And his lawyer just looked at him. But to him, tax evasion, no, that's that's okay. No, that's, that's money laundering. And you're the CEO of the bank, and that's your business model is to launder money. Yeah, that was going on a great day. I remember one of them, the customer's address was in Kiev in Ukraine and they were banking in Riga in Latvia. I said, why Riga? He said, oh, you know, they speak the same language, like it's a good bank. I said, it's a thousand kilometres away from Kiev. Why are they banking in Riga? Because the Latvian banks would accommodate them, accommodate their money laundering. So the big question is why UK shell companies were being used by this bank. And why, as we've seen in countless cases of money laundering out of the former Soviet region, they are so useful for moving illicit funds. The reason the Russians came to the UK is because the LLP entity in particular, Limited Liability Partnership Entity, your partners could be, and therefore were, offshore limited liability partnerships in the BVI, in Belize, in the Seychelles. And that model persists today. So... There's an address in North London. There is over 100,000 companies at that address. And I wrote a paper and said, treat money laundering as a virus, test, contact, trace. And with that in mind, which addresses have the high R rate for money laundering? And I do think we have to wake up to, up to it and say, how do companies actually operate and why do we tolerate it? Imagine you're at an airport and they say to you, Richard, this is your bag. No, it belongs to a British Virgin Islands company. Well, I've got some news for you, Richard. That bag is not going to get on the plane. Most importantly, the customs officer or the airport security are not going to trouble themselves trying to find out who owns this mm. poxy British Virgin mm. Islands company. It's not their issue. And I can't mm. understand in the financial services how we've allowed and made this huge industry for know your customer. Surely the customer has to tell me who they are. So you reverse the presumption. You know, when you look at these shell, these LLPs, these like kind of shell companies that are owned by further shell companies in Belize or Marshall Islands or wherever, what you're saying is they are implicitly suspicious. 
So you shouldn't be processing the transaction until it's proved to you otherwise. Correct. You're not compelled to do that. So why are you doing it? The tragic part of this is that it's now old news. I've written about these obviously corrupt shell companies for many years in Private Eye magazine. Then we've seen them in all the laundromats and most spectacularly in the large leak in 2020 from the US Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, a leak known as the FinCEN files. I've been before judges who've told my clients we were suing the bank because I wouldn't make their payments that the judge cannot instruct Mr Woods to undertake a course of action that may mean he's committing a crime of money laundering. But the banks do complete the transactions. That's what we see, isn't it? There are some very proactive people in these banks now who have recognised that the police services around the world, in the UK, 500,000 suspicious activity reports a year. It's a great big sarcasm, right, because mm. they're called suspicious activity reports, SARs, and there's a huge chasm in which they all go to. And yes, they draw upon intelligence, but they very rarely action it. In money laundering, it's often the money is in another jurisdiction and there's not enough police officers to deal with crimes in the UK, so there's never really an appetite for any police officer in the UK to get busy on foreign-related money laundering. So the banks are very proactive, and I know of one bank, a major clearer of US dollars, and they tell their customers, we never want to see any transactions for that company and that client ever again. Do you understand us? And they are policing it in that way because otherwise they're just watching money laundering if they carry on allowing it to happen. And many banks have done that. They've made money laundering and sanctioned breaching a spectator sport. They've just watched it. And you saw that in FinCEN leaks. We both worked on those cases and we both saw the nominees and we both saw the addresses. They're the same addresses I looked at and the same structures you looked at, Transparency International looked at 15, 18 years ago. I think the industry needs to move from KYC, know your customer, to understand your customer. Knowledge is, you know a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom, brackets, understanding is, understand you don't put that into a fruit salad. Well, you can have all the paperwork in the world that proves it's a company and it, and it may be owned by these people who rarely are these people. The second question is, why are they using that particular jurisdiction? BVI, the Prime Minister's have been arrested for drug trafficking, and the country features more in every single leak from the ICIJ than any other jurisdiction. Where is a brave money laundering reporting officer who goes to his CEO and says, I think we should stop doing anything at all with a BVI. We actually say to our customers, change the company and become a UK company, and we never make any payments to BVI companies. Is that such a wrong thing to do, given the circumstances? Is that almost even a logical thing to do? And when a bank does get held to account, punishments aren't exactly draconian. I've always complained about the big cases of deferred prosecutions, HSBC, BNP Paribas, and I said to the Americans at the Cambridge Economic Crime Symposium for prosecutors, I said, did you take the bonuses back from the, from the bankers? This deferred prosecution is where they agree to be good boys and girls in return for paying a fine and not being prosecuted. Yeah, and when they breach that deferred prosecution, you know what happens? They got another deferred prosecution. Another deal. Yeah, they get another <laughs> deferred prosecution, yeah. I like the one about the, the doc goes into the bar and says to the barman, you got any bread? And the barman says no and carries on serving and the says five minutes later to the barman, you got any bread? He said, no. Ten minutes later, the bloke says to the barman, you got any bread? He said, no, I've told you three times. If you ask me one more time, I'm going to nail your beak to the bar. Barman walks past ten minutes later, got any nails? He said, no. He said, in that case, you got any bread? Right. <laughs> and if you don't apply a sanction, don't expect a change of behaviour. Where's the balance of incentives for your everyday banker? Do they fear the, the financial regulators and enforcers? No. Do you think that they fear being caught? It's highly unlikely they will be caught. Do they fear the consequences of being caught? You don't see that consequence, really. So the FCA prosecuted an individual last year, the first time they prosecuted anybody for money laundering in about 20 years. 
And then if you take that into the revolving door of, of the regulator and the banking industry, the regulator never finds individuals accountable or responsible. It's as though the game of Cluedo played by the regulator has no characters in it. You've just got to find the room, the weapon, the motive, but not who did it. And individuals who transgress tend not to find themselves out of a job. Whistleblowers find themselves out of a job. They're not trusted yeah. to work in banks because um, they're too honest. Briefly, what happened to you then when you said, hang on, there's a lot of money laundering here? My bank disciplined me for doing my job, including in the discipline letter. I remember that I fielded calls from the Metropolitan Police and to clarify, I said, do you mean the phone rang? I answered it and it was the police. Yes. And that's a discipline offence. Yes. OK. I look forward to the discipline hearing, which never materialised because of different legal actions. But a very good lawyer advised me that I had to blow the whistle to the FSA, as it was at that time, which I did. That's the financial regulator, the main Yeah, financial it's now the FCA. It just changed its name. There's a great line about that. I was speaking to an American. He said, in the 1930s, it was the FBI. In the 1960s, the FBI. Today, it's the FBI. And tomorrow, it'll be the FBFNI. Right? He said, why do you people change the name and think something's different about it? I like, kind of like that. So it's still the financial regulator, just with a different name. After Martin left Wachovia, things got pretty hostile. A couple of years later, I was asking for more information, and they're very poor in dealing with whistleblowers, shockingly poor. I'd upset the FCA, and, and I was going to present at um, David Marchant's event in Miami in the 2010. Conference. Yeah. yeah. So there was a promotional document that referenced me, and, I, and it said clearly that I would not breach my non-disclosure agreement with the bank, but I talk in general terms about what you could do if you discovered criminality in your bank, which you'd think regulators would like that. Mm-hmm. But they had anxiety that I'd say something negative about the whistleblowing function of the FCA. And that would probably be correct as well. But with that in mind, they fabricated allegations against me. But to keep their own name away from it, they invented a non-existent whistleblower and submitted a false whistleblowing report against me, suggesting I, I breached my non-disclosure agreement and challenged my integrity. Probably cost me about eight or nine jobs, maybe more, that I didn't get because of that. essentially they blacklisted me. Yeah, I mean, that must be some kind of offence, creating a false report about... Yeah, but no. And here's the but no. And I'm in dialogue with people at Parliament about this at the moment. They are not a public body, so you cannot get malfeasance in a public office against them. The financial regulator is not a public body. No, because it's a membership organisation, isn't it? Yeah, although it's significantly, if not mostly, taxpayer-funded, isn't it? combination of taxpayer money and levies on the industry, I think. I mean, that's remarkable. When I complained about this, it was described as a, a relatively minor failing... And it was not malpractice, even though it clearly it was. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to trump that now and tell you, I'm in dialogue with a whistleblower. He blew the whistle on one bank and um, reported matters to the FCA. He got out from underneath that and he fortunately got on a job at another bank, which is good for him. It was great. It was all going well. His new boss is a former FCA supervisor who, after a while, said to him, he said, I know what you did at your last bank. I knew all the whistleblowers. He said, yeah. if you blow the whistle to the FCA again, I'll know about it. They'll tell me. Now, pause for a moment. Think about yeah. what this man's saying. You have an individual who's left the employ of the regulator, tells others, I knew the identity of all whistleblowers. What are the controls at the FCA that allows that to happen? And if you subsequently blow the whistle to my former employer, the regulator, my friends will tell me you did. It's so alarming that whistleblowing about money laundering, money laundering is, is the lifeblood of organised crime, and criminals commit the crime for the money. If you interfere with money, they're likely to put a bullet in your head. There's a man walking around London boasting that he knows the identity of whistleblowers who blew the whistle about organised crime. Is he a unique individual, or do all supervisors at the FCA know this? What's the control environment at the FCA to protect the identity of whistleblowers? I have no idea. And this is a present situation. Is ongoing. When we are depending on banks for effective action. So we're also depending on whistleblowers, aren't we, to to say when they're not doing that properly. 
Richard, what I would say is that there's a lot of people working hard. There's a lot of morality being applied here as well. And I do think lots of people at every level in banks are doing something to stop it. But there will be others who will identify an opportunity. And hopefully, if, if people do blow the whistle upon them, those, those whistleblowers are protected. Actions are taken against those who breach the sanctions. And collectively, we are all doing what we can. Public policy's got a lot to play there at government level. They need to get that message out that they will take action. It can't all come from compliance officers or advisors like me. You need to see it from a government that's very serious about this. And historically, they haven't been. When I worked at one firm, an individual asked if he could undertake business with a national Iranian oil company. And the head of legal, this before I even arrived at the firm, I found a paperwork afterwards, said, and there's no circumstances should you go near this client. Three days later, we took an authorised business trip to meet with National Iranian Oil Company in Europe, and they set up an offshore company for that transaction, and all the paperwork was in place. And I discovered it and said I wanted to take action against the individual. As a police officer, I could have arrested him and charged him, and I think he would have faced a jeopardy of a prison sentence. I couldn't get him sacked from the firm I worked for. I gave him a written warning. I said, do you understand what you're talking about? The man was told not to, right, and he went and did it, and actually, we're trying to stop that country building a nuclear bomb. What more serious action do you want to take? Oh, he's a great salesman. You know, yeah. eventually he did leave the company. And I can criticise the company, to it, but if the public policy was we saw people being charged, going to prison for it, then companies would say, oh, we get it now. Individuals yeah, you don't need would to say do that many, do you? You don't need to prosecute no. that many. Just one or two to show that it can be done, and it might be done to you. You know, I've been at court as a police officer, and very often in summing up, judges say in sentencing, I must impose a sentence that acts as a deterrent for others. There isn't a deterrent right now. As a country, the UK has wanted to attract financial business as much as possible for a long time. And one of the tools it's used to do that is this light-touch regulation. It's boasted of not regulating too much. Well, we've been seeing the price for quite a while. I don't want to be offensive to to the UK just for the sake of being offensive, but I I did propose, I think it may have been to David Marchant and others, can we have a session at your conference whereby four people present why their country is the best country in the world to commit fraud and money laundering. And can I please lobby on behalf of the United Kingdom? If I'd have lost, I'd have been very disappointed. So why would the UK win that contest? In the United States of America, law enforcement and regulation is a competitive business. I once said to Sir David Green, the head of the SFO, why is it the SFO don't investigate most serious frauds? And he kind of sniggered and said, I believe we do. I said, well, what about PPI, mis-selling of endowments, pension? And he said, oh, stop, stop, stop. Andrew Bailey's Ballywick. That's Andrew Bailey, then head of the FCA now Governor of the Bank of England. If you look at the Gloucester report, in that report, one of the senior officers at the FCA said, we're not trained in financial crime. So what a great place to commit financial crime because what Sir David Green, the head of the Serious Fraud Office, is saying is we don't go there unless invited. Within that organisation, they're not trained to look for and investigate financial crime. Hey-ho, that's where you should be committing your financial crime then, to not get caught, to make a lot of money and get away with it. The head of the ICIJ, Gerard Weil, said, if you took the dirty money out of the UK, the economies would shrink by 2 to 3%. That's one for the academics, isn't it? I'd really love to know what kind of number it would be. A lot of people have said, we've absolutely no idea. It's just impossible to, to calculate. We're going to ask guests regularly on the Filthy Luca podcast, what is the filthiest Luca you've ever seen? What's yours? It was actually in the police service more so than in banking, but it plays into it. Our suspect was a solicitor who was also a magistrate, and I posit that most days a week he was the baddest man in the court. His name was Stuart Craigie. He was selling his clients diplomatic passports to help them commit their crimes and to hide their identity. You can have it in any name you wanted to. But imagine you have 
a solicitor whose business is fraud and money laundering and he's marketing to his clients who are fraudsters and money launderers. Can I interest you in diplomatic passports at $50,000 a time? And the same guy, we trace two nominees that he'd put in place into this company and um, we found them and they said, we're not nominees. We remember the guy, we once looked to engage him to work for us, but we'd said no, but he had copies of their passports and then he used Mm. their passports to pretend to be owners of companies for his money laundering clients. Where you think you're not going to be caught, you just carry on and do as you do. So, Did he go down the steps? In America he did, not in the UK he didn't. He got arrested in um, the US and was convicted in the US. But he didn't get any jail time over here. Imagine you were the government minister responsible for tackling money laundering. What would be the big steps you would take? Mine would be to actually work out what's, what is our strategy. And I asked out a lot of people, what is the UK government's anti-money laundering strategy? And most of you are going to say, I haven't got a clue. But mine would be to say, we are trying to prevent money laundering as against trying to stop money launderers. What's the difference in principle? In 1990, 5,400 people were killed on the road because of traffic accidents in this country. In 1991, we deployed our first ever speed camera. Cameras are only deployed accident black spots. And the objective is not to catch speeding motorists, but to stop accidents. So the wisdom of the traffic management department said, what is our strategy? Are we trying to stop accidents or catch speeding motorists? And they decided we're trying to stop accidents. The LSC have done a study and said, within 500 metres of the deployment of speed camera, accidents dropped by between 68 and 72%. And in 2019, pre-COVID, there were 1,940 deaths on the road because of road traffic accidents. That's an incredible success story over a 33-year period. What is the anti-money laundering success story? There isn't one. We're still laundering vast sums of money. So it needs somebody to say there will be a strategy. I think the strategy should be we're trying to prevent money laundering. We're not just going to take the BVI company. We're going to ask them why they're using a BVI company. And I don't want just tax. And actually banks can say, no, I'm not going to do it. We need to show the suffering caused by money laundering. But we need a clear strategy that says we're trying to stop the money laundering. There is a lack of strategy at a very high public policy level. So that's what I'd do. Remember a few years ago, I put you in charge of, hypothetically, I put you in charge of customs and revenue, gave you the job and I gave you a £100 million budget <laughs> and you were going to get a load of money back for me. All listeners, you've got to write to your MPs and say, put Martin Wood in charge of the AML strategy for the UK and we'll get, we'll get cracking. So, scrap the shell companies and give Martin Woods a much-deserved top job. That's the money laundering problem solved. No need to thank us. Next time on Filthy Lucre... I'll be talking to Ace Financial Times investigator Cynthia O'Murchu and Oxford University business historian Chris McKenna. We'll be talking about a scandal that went from the corporate boardroom to the heart of Whitehall, Greensill.